0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. It says, But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you, Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live, if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly, that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his and we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Now we left off our study last Wednesday evening as we considered how Paul was sending Timothy back to the Thessalonians or to the Thessalonians in order to see how they were faring spiritually and to bring him and the others in his ministry team. Uh, a report. And uh, he wants to have Timothy go there. To strengthen them. To encourage them in the things of the Lord. To comfort them. And remember, Timothy was the perfect choice for this task because he had not been present at Thessalonica when the church was planted, so he had not been chased out of town as Paul and Silas had, but he was a new face in that city. He wasn't someone known to the authorities or known to the Jews, nor indeed was he even known to the church as far as his physical appearance went. And so Paul in those early verses was explaining, the early verse of this chapter was explaining why it was that he was sending Timothy, pointing out that he wasn't sending someone who was second best, but he was sending someone who was our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. So he was sending uh, someone that he really trusted implicitly in terms of ministry and expected would do a, a good job in coming and ministering to the Thessalonian church and also uh, in seeing how they were doing. So what obviously takes place here then between verses 5 and verse 6, and sometimes you don't see this in Scripture, you don't get this in Scripture as you read, but between verses 5 and 6 there's a time gap. There has to be a time gap. Because in verses 1 to 5, he's explaining that he's sending Timothy to Thessalonica. And then in verses 6 onward, he's talking about Timothy's report. The report that Timothy brought back from Thessalonica. Well, it would have taken several weeks for Timothy to get to Thessalonica from Athens. And then he returns from Thessalonica back to Corinth where Paul then was. And that would have taken a few weeks. And he would have spent some time, obviously, among the Thessalonians ministering to them and trying to encourage them and, and, uh, and teach them and just making sure they were doing okay. So there's clearly, a, you know, maybe a couple of months or more of a time gap between verses 5 and 6. So sometimes when you're reading these letters, you tend to think Paul sat down and he wrote it as one whole. But evidently what he did here was he wrote down to verse 5 and then he put his pen down. And he waited to see what would happen. And then Timothy comes back and brings the report uh, to him. So there's a a clear period of time between verses 5 and 6. And notice when Paul comes in verse 6, or Timothy comes rather, he brings good tidings. It says, now when Timotheus came from you unto us, and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity. And the word "good tidings" is just good news. In fact, this is the same word that is used for the uh, the gospel. The gospel, of course, the word gospel means good news. And this is the only place in the New Testament where this phrase "good news" is used that is not in reference to the gospel itself, but is in reference to the report of Timothy coming from the Thessalonians. And so, you know, the Bible says in Proverbs 25, 25, As cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. And that's true, isn't it? If you have a friend, a brother in some place, and they write and you get a letter from them and uh, you know, they, they give a glowing report of whatever is going on. It's good news. It's like a refreshing drink. It's as cold waters to a thirsty soul. Well, let's look at Timothy's report to begin with in verses 6 through 8. He says, But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, And that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted or encouraged over you in all your affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. Now by the time that Timothy reunited with Paul the apostle as I said had left Athens. Remember he had been abandoned in Athens with the agreement of the others. They agreed that he should be left there. He'd been abandoned in Athens he subsequently went and proclaimed Christ in Mars Hill and he had moved on uh, to the city of Corinth where he's now going to uh, continue his evangelization of that region. And uh, as he comes into Corinth, Timothy joins him there and he brings this report support concerning the Thessalonian church and Paul lifts up his pen and he resumes writing the letter. So the news that, as we've, as we've just said, the news that Timothy brings is good tidings, it's refreshing news, it's encouraging, it's a blessing to Paul. And uh, as I said, the phrase good news or good tidings there is used also of the gospel. But only here of this, in this particular instance of news brought from a man to another man. But rather the gospel is the good news from God uh, to man. So the Thessalonians had stood firm. That was the report that Tim, Timothy brought. The uh, Thessalonians had not capitulated as a consequence of their persecution. Remember the, the wagging dog tail, uh, how that dog uh, deceives you and flatters you and uh, you know, the Thessalonians hadn't fallen for it. They hadn't fallen for the devil's temptation. They hadn't bought into the idea that if they would uh, rena- renounce Christ and deny the faith, life would be easier for them and that they would do a lot better. No, they'd stood their ground. And so they were, they were evidently holding firm and this was manifested by two great virtues. The first of which was faith. Now, faith isn't just a belief in some nefarious idea. Faith is a conviction about the truth. Faith must always have an object. You know, if you go up to uh, Rushmere, no, not Rushmere, sorry, the High Street Mall in uh, Portadown, there's a jewelry shop there. I think it's called Faiths. And uh, when you get in, I was in there one day and I noticed you had a little card and it said, Have faith in faith. (laughs) And I I wanted to say to her, you can't have faith in faith. You have to have faith in something. (laughs) You can't just have faith in faith. You have to have faith in an object. Faith must be placed in something and not in faith itself. Now, that was what I was dying to say to her, but I knew it wouldn't make any sense to her, so I didn't bother. But nevertheless, you have to have faith in a particular object. And here is the the truth of the gospel, the truth that Paul had brought was where their faith rested. And also they were manifesting love, charity. Uh, He says he brought us good tidings of your faith and charity. And of course, charity is the mark of true Christian discipleship. Jesus says herein shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one toward another. And that's the mark of true Christian discipleship above all else. You know know, there are things that uh, we can disagree about. There's things that we may not always see eye to eye on. But even if we don't we're required by God to love one another. And we should love one another. Indeed if the Holy Spirit is ruling and reigning in our lives. So not only that, but they recalled Paul's visit with great warmth uh, and great affection. And clearly they hadn't accepted any negative rumor about him. Remember in chapter 2, he went through all of those, those areas in which he thought perhaps his character might be attacked or his motives might be attacked. They hadn't bought into any of that either. They were still thinking positively of him. In fact, they were longing to see him, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you. And remember, when Paul said that of the Thessalonians, he used a very interesting word, a word that means lust. He was was lusting to see them. And likewise, they were lusting to see him. That's what the phrase desiring greatly to see us indicates. There was this passion uh, to see Paul and to uh, renew fellowship with him. And so they longed after him. Now notice he then says in verse 7, Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. And again, we, we see Paul's own vulnerability here. He says, you know, we were comforted. Why would he need to be comforted? You know, why would he be, you know, the word comforted there can mean encouraged. Why did he need encouraged? Because he'd had one setback after another. One discouragement after another. He'd been arrested and imprisoned in Philippi. He'd been chased out of Thessalonica. He'd been chased out of Berea. He'd been mocked in Athens. And now he comes to Corinth. And guess what? Things are also taking a turn for the worse. Look in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Then let's look at verse 11. It says, And he continued there in Corinth a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And when Galeo was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul, and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, Galeo said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of words and aims and of your law, look you to it, for I will be no judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Galileo cared for none of those things. Now, although this particular court case ends well for Paul, in that the judge dismisses any charges against him, or at least he categorizes them as a matter of Jewish religion and not a matter of secular law, and he's not prepared to deal with it. Uh, nevertheless. You, you appreciate that Paul has been here before. He's been dragged before magistrates before, and so now again he finds himself on the wrong side of a court case, on the wrong side of, of the law. And so, you know, if you've been, if you've already been arrested and beaten, if you've already been chased out of one town and then a second town, if you've got to another place and they mocked you, and then you find yourself in yet another city and being dragged before the law courts. Let me tell you something. That's not the most encouraging place for a christian to be you thinking to yourself goodness gracious! you know is there no end to this he's always he seems like he's always getting the wrong end of things and so you know earlier in this chapter of thessalonians he had spoke about his loneliness uh, but here again we see something of his vulnerability when he says that this report brought him comfort or it encouraged him it encouraged him And it's easy to see why he went into Corinth, as we've touched on already, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. If you've had one bad experience and another bad experience comes your way, guess what? As soon as the second bad experience raises its ugly head, there's stress. You know, um, I went through a very stressful situation in a church one time. Very stressful to the point where there was a constant knot in my stomach, night and day. Uh, I woke up with it in the morning and went to bed with it at night. It just sat there like a tennis ball. And uh, thankfully, you know, the Lord got me through that. But the, the next time a similar type of incident occurred, even though there was no indication it would be as bad as the original incident, Just the very idea that you might go down that road again. As soon as that moment entered your your life, guess what? The knot came back to your stomach. And it just was there. And immediately it came back. And you know, I think that's where Paul was. He was so disheartened. He was so discouraged. You know, he wasn't sure how things were going in Thessalonica. He hadn't been particularly successful in Berea. He hadn't got a church started in Athens. He had moved on to Corinth. Now he's being dragged before the law courts. And you can almost imagine when he's being hauled before the courts, this knot comes back in his stomach. And he says, I came to you, speaking of the Corinthians, in weakness and in fear. And in fear. We don't normally associate fear with Paul and much trembling so besides the physical and the spiritual resistance he faced he also bore the burden of the churches as a whole uh, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, he makes that point that he carries the burden of all the churches remember he's a missionary evangelist you know thank the Lord I've only got to care about one church <laughs> but he had several churches to worry about he had lots of young Christians he was worried about and was carrying the burden of, And uh, you know one of those churches was this church of Thessalonica. You know I like what Charles Swindoll says. He says you'll recall that a wave of persecution had forced the apostle away from the Christians in Thessalonica. As he traveled to other cities he worried about these new believers. Like a parent who tosses and turns in the night concerned about his far away children. You know, we sent our son, we didn't, we didn't send him, but he went, uh, when he, I think when he was about 17, maybe 16, uh, to, on a mission trip to South Africa. Um, and we, we sent him off, off to, he had to get a flight to Zurich uh, in Switzerland and then change flights for Johannesburg. And he's just, you know, a 16-year-old boy, 15, 16, 17, whatever age he was, somewhere in there. And the whole time, you know, from the moment he left our front door, <laughs> we were fretting about him. Particularly making the flight, we knew he'd be okay with, if he connected with the missionary in Johannesburg, who was Paul Craig, accident, incidentally, from uh, Killicomane. But, uh, but we knew he'd be okay as soon as he met Paul. He'd be fine. But we were just concerned bet- between A and B, you know, that he was going to get there. We didn't want to wake up and find he was in Tokyo or somewhere. <laughs> you're worrying about him, you're tossing, you're turning. And that's where Paul was with these churches. He was tossing and turning. He was, you know, he was concerned for them. So Timothy's report comforted him. It did more than that. It actually energized him. Look at the phrase uh, again that he uses in, in uh, chapter 3 there. He says in verse 8, For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. He says, We're energized where, you know, it's, it's almost like, as I say, he's had one bad experience after another, jailed in Philippi, chased out of Thessalonica, chased out of Berea, and mocked in Athens... Comes to Corinth, dragged before the courts, and he's wondering what's going on in Thessalonica. Then Timothy arrives, brings this positive report, says, guess what? These people are hanging on, Their, their faith is holding, and they love one another. And he says, suddenly in that moment, I became energized because I realized that God was blessing what I was doing. You know, Charles Swindoll again has a very interesting view in the Thessalonian response to their difficulties. Here's what he says. When Christians lose their theological moorings and falter in the face of adversity, three damaging responses generally occur. First, they harbor resentment toward a former authority figure. It's the pastor's fault. (laughs) Second, they isolate themselves from Christian friends. I'm not going to church. And finally, they begin to doubt and grow indifferent toward the biblical instruction they used to embrace. The Thessalonian Christians managed to withstand falling prey to all three responses. And Paul tells us how they did it. They refused to blame a former authority for their sufferings. In verse 6, they desired greatly to see him. They desired to maintain close ties with Paul and his associates in ministry. They longed to see Paul and Timothy as much as Paul and Timothy wanted to get together with the Thessalonians. And they maintained a firm commitment to spiritual truth in verses 7 and 8. Paul put it this way, Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. The Thessalonians did not doubt or grow indifferent to the truth that they had received from Paul. Instead, they maintained their convictions and found, and, and found strength in them, which helped them uh, help to see them through because these new believers were able to endure their trials. Paul and his companions could really live. That is, they could be encouraged through their own struggles. So in other words, when this news comes from Timothy uh, that uh, that the Thessalonians were doing well, suddenly the fear was gone, the trembling uh, was gone, Uh, the the stress uh, was gone, the weakness was gone. He was rejuvenated. You know, it's like when you see somebody saved. If you're out soul winning and you actually see somebody saved, guess what? You're encouraged to go soul winning again, aren't you? You know, if you're if you're a fisherman and you go fishing and you catch a fish, you know, you don't just say, well, I caught a fish, I'll go home now. You want to catch another fish. You know, I, my wife and I went on holiday years ago and we had this deal that I would fish in the morning on a particular day and she could shop in the afternoon. And she would come with me fishing and I'd go with her. Shopping, and so we went out fishing out in I think it was in toy or Ballycastle maybe, but anyway, I went out and uh, you know dipped my line in the water, and uh, you know as as it, as it worked out, a fish literally bit it as soon as it hit the water. I mean, almost as soon as the bait hit the water, there was a fish on the end of the rod, and I reeled it in. Happy as can be. Here I said, "Okay, let's go now." <laughs> and I said, "What?" She says, you've got a fish, let's go shopping. And I said, no, I'm going to try and catch another fish. And she says, why would you want to catch another one? You've got one. And we had this argument. But, you know, it's the same in soul one. And if you catch a fish, you catch someone, if you lead someone to the Lord, you don't think, oh, well, I've led somebody to the Lord, I'll just lead that. No, you you want to lead somebody else to the Lord. And so when Paul hears the Thessalonians are doing well, he's excited about the Corinthians. And all that weakness and fear and trembling is gone. So he says, "We we live, we can breathe easy." You know, John says, "This I have no greater joy uh, than to hear that my children walk in truth." You know, every now and then, you know, as a pastor, you get a you get a, a communication, a letter, an email from somebody you ministered to in years gone by, and they will tell you, you know, how you have impacted their life in some way. And, you know, I can tell you, as a pastor, that is so encouraging, so exciting. You know, I, while I was in England, I got a letter from a young man in, uh, who used to be at, at Bray Hill to tell me he had just finished Bible school and was going off to be a pastor. And, and uh, you know, I was so excited. You know, he was going to Bible school. Tell you the truth, he, out of all the young people in the church, he was the one I thought least likely to go to Bible school. But he went, and he's a pastor today. And you just don't know. It's and it's so exciting when you when you when you receive something like that. So you know, John says. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth, which Paul would have certainly added a hearty amen. So there can be no questioning of Paul's love for these saints of Macedonia. And to quote John Phillips, he says, Paul's converts were a vital part of his life. He loved them and lived in them. Did someone try to lead them astray? Paul was outraged. Did someone attack them? Paul leapt to their defense. Were they suffering persecution? Paul's heart ached for them. He wept with those who wept. He rejoiced with those who rejoiced. He wrote to them. He kept in touch with them. As far as humanly possible, Paul involved himself in their affairs. So he was heartened by Timothy's report. But notice then he has a request in verse 9. Notice Paul's request in in verse 9. And it's a prayer request. He says, For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joys where all the joy whereeth we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly, that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God Himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men. Even as we do toward you. To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God. Even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So the news from Thessalonica... brought about a spontaneous, spontaneous uh, prayer request and thanksgiving. He praised and thanked the Lord uh, for them. And uh, though he was having his own personal struggles there in Corinth, he didn't allow his problems, and I want you to get this, he didn't allow his problems to dictate his attitude. You know, sometimes if we're having a bad day, we allow that bad day to affect our attitude to everything else around us. Paul wasn't that way. Uh, he, didn't, uh, he didn't do that. He managed... To praise God for all that he was doing both in his life and in their lives, this is clear from verses nine and ten for notice he praises God uh, the work of God in the Thessalonian church. For what thanks can we render again to God or sorry, for what thanks can we render to God again for you, uh, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God you know he's Look at look at that prayer that prayer and, and thanksgiving. How often you know do we get the balance wrong in our prayer meetings? You know we're going to go to prayer in a little bit, and and don't misunderstand me here, please don't. But many times in, in prayer meetings, in church prayer meetings, we're praying for material provision, we're praying for uh, physical uh, needs. You know we're praying for jobs, we're praying for. Uh, people, people's provision we're praying for good health and so on and, and I'm all for that I'm not saying we can't pray for those things please don't misread me but how often do we pray about spiritual matters do we pray for each other's spiritual well being do we pray that you know God would help us to resist temptation that he would use us to win souls that he would cause us to glorify uh, Christ you know here is Paul praising God uh, for his work in the Thessalonian church and then there was this prayer request in verses uh, verse, uh, verse 10 he says night and day praying God praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith and the phrase night and day doesn't intimate two separate prayer sessions but unceasing prayer He says, I'm praying all day long, all evening. You're on my heart and mind. I'm praying for you. Night and day, I'm praying for you. So it wasn't like he just prayed at 6 o'clock in the morning and 6 o'clock in the evening in a formal way, and that was it. No, he, they were constantly on his heart. He was always praying for them, and uh, his prayer was that they would see each other's faces. Uh, but not again that they might socialize and you know renew old acquaintances. But again, there's a spiritual aspect of this. He wants to make perfect uh, that, uh, make complete uh, that, is make complete the the areas in which they were lacking. That uh, might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. There were some things they still needed to know. There were some things they still needed to understand. Chapter four and five is going to deal with some of those things. But you know, Paul says, I wanna I wanna see you so as I can teach you and I can make complete your instruction, I can fill in the gaps of your learning. And help you understand some things. And uh, you know some of these things. That say he's going to address. In in this epistle and in the next epistle. But isn't that true for all of us. Isn't it true that in all of us. There's gaps in our learning. it It doesn't matter how long you've been saved. You know you can be saved. For 50 years or more. And still learn things. And find there were things you still didn't know. You know the Bible's an unsearchable book. That's one of the things I love about it. You know, you, could, you can look at other books, you know, you can study Shakespeare and say, well, I know everything there is to know. But you'll never study the Word of God and say, I know everything there is to know. You know, some people sometimes think the pastor knows everything there is to know. And he doesn't. <laughs> I don't. Okay, I hate to disappoint you if you had that thought, but I don't. I have to learn some things. I have to grow. Every now and then, you know, I find myself correcting things as my knowledge of the scripture increases. You know, I may have had one view in a particular scripture and then later on I come back to it again and think, you know what? I didn't get a handle on that. I didn't understand the context there. And now I've got a better understanding of it. And that's growth. And that's for all of us. So when Paul talks about things being lacking in their faith, you know, let's not sit here and look down our noses and think, well, they were a very immature group of people. No, they were a regular church, just like we're a regular church, just like none of us knows everything. And all of us have something to learn. So he asked the Lord to open up the way to reunion with them. Now, remember, this way was hindered. He talked about it in the earlier, uh, in the earlier chapter, chapter 2. He says that Satan has hindered us. Remember, he was held back by Satan's activities. Uh, you know, the, the, the fact is the local authorities had put a bond upon Jason, not allowing him to return. And uh, Paul had been forced to depart the city. And so Satan subsequently manipulated the circumstances, the conditions whereby Paul could not return. So the wicked one, if you remember the phrase, the phrase hindered, he had torn up the road. He had torn up the road back. And Paul is now asking the Lord to fix that. You see, here's the thing. If Satan hinders us, only God can help us. If Satan hinders us, only God can help us. And that's why, you know, even in our prayer time, we should be praying against Satan. You know, how many times have I heard, you know, how difficult it has been for our church to make inroads into this village. Well, Satan is hindering us. Let us pray that God would remove that hindrance. Because if Satan is hindering us, only God can help us. Now, Paul was not forgetful of the fact that ultimately God overrules the affairs of men. Again the book of Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1 the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as rivers of water uh, he turneth it whithersoever he will in other words god can god could change the minds of the uh, of the magistrates back in Thessalonica he could perhaps have them lift the bond again off Jason and permit Paul to come back there could be a change in rulership and authority that would you know turn things around for him So he looked to the Lord to direct his way back to Thessalonica. That's what he asked for. Verse 11. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way onto you. By the way, that's a very strong verse in favor of the deity of Christ. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses often like to point out the fact that that Christ is separate from the Father. As if they're two different people, two different persons. But notice he says, now God himself... And our Father. And our Lord Jesus Christ. He's connecting Christ with the Father. And both as deity. It's a very strong verse in favor of the deity of Christ. But nevertheless, I digress. He says, he's praying to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To direct our way back onto you. And that word direct involves the removal of hindrances. It involves making the path straight. Making it level again and allowing him to uh, to, uh, to move across back toward Thessalonica so neither Paul nor the Thessalonians could force that reunion they, uh, even if they wanted to uh, they shouldn't try and manipulate their circumstances to their own ends but they had to look to the Lord to do it according to his will and his time now here's the thing, Paul never did return to Thessalonica I want you to get this because Again, we we tend to think that Bible characters always got their prayers answered. Paul didn't get this prayer answered. In fact, if you read is it uh, one Corinthians uh, twelve or two Corinthians twelve? Sorry, where he talks about the thorn in the flesh, he prayed three times that the Lord would remove it, and it wasn't removed. It wasn't. So you know, Paul didn't get all of his prayers answered. And just because we don't get all our prayers answered doesn't mean that God isn't hearing us, nor indeed that we're not that we're not getting any of them answered. So be encouraged. You know, I love I love the fact that this book is exposing Paul's humanity. You know, that he's a real flesh and blood Christian. He's not a superhero. He's not wearing a cape and a mask. He's not flying over the houses of Corinth. He's a regular Christian, doing what regular Christians should be doing reaching out to the lost. So he didn't get this prayer answered. and uh, So we should not be disheartened when our prayers go unanswered. And then he says this, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love, one toward another, in verse 12, and toward all men, even as we do toward you. So this is a continuation of his prayer. He prayed that their love toward one another would increase. Now this chapter already revealed that they have love one toward another. I mean, Timothy's report said that, they, uh, that uh, they had faith and they had love. They had charity. So they had love. Uh, but there's always room for growth in love. Now, here me want to say this. You can never love enough. You know, can you imagine what would happen if it was Valentine's Day and I gave my wife a card and it says, I've loved you enough. How's that going to go? It's not going to end well, is it? There's not going to be a romantic meal in the evening. There's going to be an interrogation, isn't there? What do you mean you've loved me enough? What's going through your little pea brain that makes you think you've loved me enough? You can't love somebody enough, but you can love them more and more. And we have to develop that love as a congregation. You know, as you look around and see the people that are gathered here both tonight, tonight and on Sundays, we've got to learn to love one another and really love one another. That's what makes a good church a great church. You see, we can have all our ducks in a row doctrinally. We can cross all our T's and dot all our I's and say, yeah, we know we're absolutely right. But you know what? If we don't love, each, love one another, it means nothing. We've got to love one another we should love uh, we should love the church because Christ loved the church and we should love the church as Christ loved the church look in Ephesians chapter 5 Ephesians chapter 5 in verse 25 Now here's a parallel between marital love and Christ's love It says husbands love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, when you think about that, Christ was willing to lay down his life for the church. That was the manifestation of his love toward us. You know, I heard a story years ago about a young man who had just got married and, uh, you know, he was really besotted with his wife. You You know, he's in the first flush of his married life and uh, he's besotted with her. He just—he just is worshiping the ground she walks on. And uh, he gets—he gets. What's that face for? Anyway, he. he uh, my wife just gave me like a, a roll of the eyeballs. I don't know what was going on there. Maybe indigestion or something. I don't know. But anyway, uh, but the, the first, he was he he was in. going to look that way. He was in a the first flush of love. And uh, you know. He goes to his pastor and he says, Pastor, I've got a problem. And he, the pastor says, Well, what's your problem? He says, It's my wife. He says, What's wrong with your wife? He says, There's nothing wrong with my wife. He says, It's just I think I love her too much. And the pastor says, You love her too much? What do you mean? He says, he says I just can't stop thinking about her. He says, Every day I'm thinking about her. When I'm not with her, I want to be with her. And when I'm with her, I'm just so happy. And I, and I just feel like I love her too much. And the pastor says, well, have you died for her yet? He says, well, no, obviously not. He says, and you haven't loved her enough because husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. He says, now go away and love her some more. Now, that was great advice. That was great pastoral advice. But you know what? Even if we love each other now, we're to love each other more. We're to grow and increase in love. You know, it's interesting that we're to love one another. That's what the Bible says here in, 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 in 1 Thessalonians there in chapter 3 and verse 12. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another. You know, there's 32 one another statements in the New Testament but by far the exhortation to love one another is the one that gets the most references and has the greatest frequency uh, than any of the other one another statements in scripture now in view of this exhortation to the Thessalonians Warren Wiersbe says this times of suffering now remember they were suffering they were being persecuted he says times of suffering can be times of selfishness persecuted people often become very self-centered and demanding. Now you say, well, I, I don't really get that. Just think back a couple of years ago, at the start of the pandemic. Do you remember the big rush for Luro? Huh? I mean, as soon as there was word that we were going into lockdown, suddenly Luro became a prime commodity, more valuable than wheat or oil or anything else. And people were dashing to the shops. And they were, you know, they were I've seen them. You've probably seen them too. Coming out of the supermarkets with trolley loads of toilet roll. And, and you're like, what are you going to do with all that stuff? You know, I have a friend. He bought 165 toilet rolls. 165 toilet rolls. And, you know, I remember being in, in a shop one night. There was a, there was a run on nappies. During the pandemic, and Hazel and I were in a, in a Tesco, I think it was, and there was a, a pile of nappies that just came out into the into the shop. And an announcement came out that they were going, you know, cheap or whatever. I'm not kidding you. The announcement was hardly the woman hardly made the announcement. They were gone. One lady got them all. She piled them all into her trolley. I mean, this lady was about 90 years old. She she piled them all into her trolley. This, these nappies for a newborn. And she looked at us and she says, it's for my, it's for my daughter. It's not for me, it's for my daughter. It's like she was excusing the fact that she was taking every nappy in the shop. No thought for anybody else. No concern. It's all about me. And that's how it is sometimes during persecution. I've got to look after me. It doesn't If you starve, that's your problem. If you don't have toilet roll, that's your problem. you don't have nappies for your baby, that's your problem. I've got all these things. So uh, here's what Wiersbe says. Times of suffering can bring times of selfishness. So it does. Persecuted people often are very self-centered and demanding. What life does to us depends on what life finds in us. And nothing reveals the true inner man like the furnace of affliction. Some people build walls in times of trial and shut themselves off. Others build bridges and draw closer to the Lord and to his people. And that's what the Thessalonians did. They drew closer to each other. And notice then the the prayer continues. Verse 13. To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God. Now this is the holiness that comes from God. At salvation we are partakers of the divine nature. And in particular we are partakers of God's holiness. We are saints. We are made saints. The word means holy ones, sanctified ones, literally. We're sanctified. Now, there's a progressive element to our holiness. And there, you know, there has to be a practical response to that truth that we are holy. Therefore, as we grow in sanctification, as we increase in holiness, uh, we should uh, should seek to do so every bit as much as we do in love. There's never a point where you say, well, I've I've now reached a point of sanctification whereby I don't need to grow anymore. No, Paul again is, is praying that they would continue on in this. And there's an eternal aspect of holiness. There's coming a day when, we'll be, when we will be perfectly sanctified, when there will be no sin in any of us. You know, I wonder sometimes, as I thought about that, you know, there's some Christians you probably won't recognise in glory because there's no sin in any, There'll be no sin in any of us. You only knew them whenever they were rascals, <laughs> when they were up to mischief on earth. You know, they say, "I can't believe it's you." <laughs> But there's this eternal aspect. There's coming a day we'll be perfectly sanctified. And that's what Paul is driving at here. He says to the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God. Even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. He's looking forward to that, now, that day now when uh, practical sanctification gives way to perfect sanctification. And perfect sanctification becomes a reality. And that only happens at the coming of the Lord. Now, once again, in this book, as the, previous, as the previous chapters, this chapter closes out uh, with reference to end time truth. To that end, that you may establish your hearts unblameable and holiness before God, even our father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now, this verse literally reads to the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable and holiness before God, even our father in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. You see, uh, the word coming there is the word parousia. It means presence. So he's talking about the presence of the Lord. And it's important that we understand this. Especially in the light of that final phrase, which troubles so many. Because here perfect holiness is viewed as being realized when the Lord comes with all his saints. Now in premillennial theology, this presents a difficulty. Hear me out here. For we talk about the Lord coming first for his church, for his saints and then seven years later he comes to earth with his saints okay so that being the case when are we glorified are we glorified when he comes for his saints or are we glorified when he comes with his saints well in the premillennial thought we're glorified when he comes for his saints 1 Corinthians 15 in a moment in a twinkling of an eye at the last trump we'll all be changed we'll be raised incorruptible so on. So that's our understanding. But here the Bible says that perfect sanctification is occurs when the Lord comes with all his saints. So that being the case, when are we glorified? Rapture or revelation? Well, we certainly cannot go into the sphere of heaven in our present corruptible state. The Lord isn't going to call us up in this present uh, mortal body with all of the fleshly sins that it it houses. Uh, So it has to be a change. And that thought, as I say, is the very heart of the resurrection chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, 15. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. So this necessitates change, which is spoken of in the next two verses of that chapter so the question is when are we perfectly sanctified and what is meant by with the saints well the answer it comes in the next chapter in verse 14 for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again even so them also would sleep in Jesus will God bring with him so what happens in the rapture is that the dead in Christ rise first? Then we who are alive and remain are caught up to uh, with them to be with the Lord in the air. Now we are now we're meeting the Lord. We're in the presence of the Lord with His saints, with the dead in Christ who have gone before. At that moment, we are perfectly sanctified, and we continue into the heavens to stand before the bema seat judgment and to be rewarded according to our works. Before ultimately returning to earth with. The Lord and with the saints for the Lord to establish his kingdom upon this earth. And so we'll go into all of that when we get into uh, chapter 4. Where Paul is going to detail, particularly in the latter part of that chapter and in the chapter 5. He's going to detail uh, some of the mechanics of the second coming. So having closed this chapter with a consideration of our eternal sanctification in the light of the Lord's soon appearing. Paul now moves on to chapter four to deal practically with our sanctification in the light of the Lord's coming. And this is a a vital, vital passage. Chapter 4, it talks about, in verse 3, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. Very practical passage, this. In fact, I may well preach this next section on a Sunday morning when we've got the whole group here because uh, there's a lot of really important truth here for young people and for single people. And I really feel it's maybe something that the whole church uh, needs to hear rather than, uh, than just the folks that are gathered here. This evening, But Paul's going to lay before us our practical sanctification, and then he's going to go on and talk about the coming of the Lord and uh, deal with the, the chronology and, indeed, the mechanics uh, of the Lord's coming. So he's going to speak about our call uh, to holiness in this next uh, section of the book uh, before dealing with our upward call into the presence of the Lord. So we'll leave it there for this evening, and uh, Lord willing, we'll pick up in chapter 4. Uh, I think, like I say, we'll probably—I'll probably preach this on a Sunday morning, Chapter Four. Um, take a wee break from Genesis and deal with that, and then move on. And uh, maybe it'll wet people's appetites to come out and hear the rest of Chapter Four on a Wednesday night. Who knows? Anyway, we'll leave it there for this evening.